Welcome to Bitcoin Macro, a pop-up podcast produced as part of the Coindesk Invest New York conference in November. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly. Both the podcast and the event explore the intersection of Bitcoin and the global macro economy with perspectives from some of the leading thinkers in finance, crypto, and beyond. Welcome to uh, the latest edition of our pop-up podcast around Bitcoin. This podcast in particular is designed to shed light on some of the content that you're going to hear about at Consensus Invest on November 12th here in New York City. Today, we have a, a veteran speaker of our series and a crossover star, Josh Brown who uh, certainly is known for his role in uh, mainstream financial news, a regular on CNBC, various other networks. Josh Brown has been with us uh, at Invest since it launched in 2017. He gave terrific advice uh, to the original uh, attendees of that conference and was our, our final uh, keynote fireside chat with Howard Lanzon, his good friend. Uh, last year, he came back to let the audience know what asset managers are really concerned about when it comes to uh, cryptocurrencies in general. And this year, he's going to involve himself uh, as our master of ceremonies, and we'll introduce all of our, our great panelists, and, and we're happy to have him. So Crossover Star, I think, is a, a good way to describe you. A lot of people know you in crypto, uh, but you're certainly better known for your, for your mainstream financial news. Hi, Nolan. It's great to be with you. Great to have you aboard. Uh, so we're going to jump right in. This podcast is really all about Bitcoin. And the first question uh, is about Bitcoin behaving as a macro asset. So you've seen a lot of uh, what's going on in the world today. You're, you're pretty plugged in. How do you see Bitcoin fitting in here? Is it an actual uh, asset that you can see uh, as, as a, a way to hedge macroeconomic uh, changes? Or is it sort of still in the wings waiting to be, to be built up and, and, and mature a little more before it's, it's really in this major leagues of macro assets. As I said to you just prior to recording, I see myself as more of a student than a teacher in this realm, but I'm an, I'm an apt pupil and I try to pay attention to various opinions and uh, of course, you know, look at uh, charts and price action. And I try my best to understand what's happening. To answer that question directly, I would say I do not believe that Bitcoin behaves in any way like a macro asset. And the only reason I'm saying that is because we have no evidence that it's correlated um, with any other macro development. In other words, I wish I could say when, you know, think about gold, when people are worried about inflation, and I'm not saying gold is a great inflation hedge, but when people are worried about it, there are trades where you can see flows go into that asset class. Like it's, it's, it's demonstrative. So mm -hmm. you could say, whether or not you think gold is an inflation hedge, you know that other people do, and it acts that way. Think about utility stocks. All year long, the story has been the Federal Reserve about to lower rates. Now they're lowering rates. Maybe they're going to lower rates more. And as that process has happened, you've seen money flow into utility stocks, which are prized for their high yields. So if you're not getting yields in bonds, what's the next best thing or the next next best thing? It's high yielding equities and utilities are considered to be among the safest high yielding stocks. So you could say that that's a macro asset. What can we say about Bitcoin that's even close to being comparable? In the month of October, I think it's a, rec a, a world record 
of people around the world involved in various protests, Mm -hmm. whether we're talking about Santiago or we're talking about what's going on in Hong Kong, uh, all over the world. There are millions and millions of people taking to the streets. Why isn't Bitcoin up 50 percent if, in fact, it's a protest asset? Mm -hmm. Well, it isn't. So I don't know Mm -hmm. if we're worried about disinflation and we say that maybe people, if they're scared of their own currency, there'll be this huge rush into Bitcoin. Well, where is that happening? Mm-hmm. It isn't. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would love to be able to answer in the affirmative and say, yes, Bitcoin has now taken its place among the pantheon of asset classes that people can use to express a, a macro view, but it just isn't, there's no evidence for that. So my answer to you is no, it isn't, um, but maybe that'll change at some point. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that you're focusing on the behavior, I think, is the important part here. A lot of people get caught up with what they want it to, to be, and they, they sort of will fall into, a, you know, a kind of a bubble where they see it behaving in ways that maybe it isn't actually given the facts and, and that you underlined here that the behavior of it, given all these conditions, is pretty clear. Um, it looks like a speculative asset that people are interested in making some money on and and certainly there needs to be a high risk tolerance to, to get exposure at, even to this day. If we're saying that Bitcoin's um, most obvious use case is the ability to get out of a fiat currency and move money out of a country, or it's got huge competition. U.S. dollars uh, are, are what people want all over the world. In Asia, maybe they want the yen. When they fear for the safety of the, the currency or capital markets or the economy in which they they live. This is a fact. Mm-hmm. And then if we're saying, well, people are going to use Bitcoin when they want to get out of the denomination of whatever their country is, um, or the jurisdiction, they want to, I don't want to use the word hide money, but they want to literally move money where it can't be touched. Well, real estate has been a much, much more prominent uh, way to do that. Look at Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Half the buildings are, are Chinese money. Mm-hmm. Look at um, the towers they're putting up in New York. They just put the cap, uh, the capstone, I think it's called, or whatever. They just put the cap on something called Central Park Tower. I think it's 1,400 feet high. It's the tallest residential building in the Western Hemisphere. Um, it's only going to have 70-something apartments. Mm-hmm. So who's buying those apartments? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not like a guy who's a lawyer in New York City. These are 7, 10, 20 $50 million uh, apartments, you could think about these as safe deposit boxes for Russians, Indians, Chinese, mm-hmm. people that are trying to have assets outside of the country. Nobody's even going to live in, in, in half these apartments. And that's just one tower of, of five that I could reference off the top of my head. Yeah, the, so, the one they built on Lexington, uh, the, the skinnier one that went up earlier, I can't remember the name right now, but you can see the windows are empty. You know, the, the, the lights are off in the course. windows every single night. You want to laugh? When they built uh, 437 Park, which I think was the largest until this new one, uh, the tallest, they did something for New York City called a traffic study. So if you want to build something of size, you have to spend millions of dollars in a couple of years studying what the impact will be on on local traffic. And the joke is there ain't going to be no fucking traffic because no one's going to live there. So like that is the way you're seeing foreign nationals move money out of their currency or out of their government's jurisdiction um, and into what they consider to be a safer place. Um, And you're just not seeing those dollar flows uh, into Bitcoin to the same extent. So it's hard to make the case that functionally that's what's really happening there. 
And you mentioned uh, something that I hadn't really heard before. You know, we, we call it a safe haven asset, but you called it a protest asset as well. And I think that's a really interesting label and that its behavior really hasn't mimicked what you'd expect from a protest asset. Now, I saw it traded at a premium at, when the Hong Kong protest began. It traded about a $100 premium. And that was really because people were worried about using their Oyster cards, their Metro cards to get home back to China if they're going to the mainland because they were going to get tracked. and basically just really worried about local dollars being tracked. But we haven't really seen that premium stick and we haven't really seen that sort of flow towards towards using this so that you're not surveyed and you're not spied on so they know where your your simple consumption dollars had gone. Somebody was telling me about Venezuela and mm-hmm. I'm aware of what's going on in the economy there. And it's been going on for years. And hyperinflation, the collapse of, of uh, institutions, people starving. It's a horrible, horrible situation. Um, Now, if you were to tell me 30% of all Venezuelans have moved their money from the local currency into Bitcoin, then I would shut my mouth Mm -hmm. and I would say, okay, there's something substantial here. Mm -hmm. But that's, I don't think that's the case. Do you? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, and we've seen, you know, Turkey, for example, has, you know, seen a lot of, uh, a lot of users, let's say buyers. Yeah. Great example. Another inflationary situation where uh, people, for political reasons, want assets out of that country and the the local currency and economy is collapsing. Yeah, but we just haven't seen, like you're saying, we just haven't seen that kind of use. Yeah, where is it? Where is it? When does it start? So yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it can't. I'm just saying I, I'm not seeing it. Now, now moving on to a recession, you know, a lot of rumors of recessions, uh, you know, we're still doing pretty well here in the United States, but but it's certainly crept in in other jurisdictions. So, you know, we've seen this sort of cheap money around the world for a long time. And it looks like even from, you know, high risk tolerance from the VC side of things, because money and, 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 you know, it's just available and it looks like every idea out there is funded and the risk tolerance has grown to, to a certain extent here. Now, if that changes, if a recession does cause some kind of liquidity crunch or some inability to get access to this cheap money again, how do you think Bitcoin behaves? I guess we have no, in the United States, we have no prior history of it. So we'll say we've been in expansion for uh, 11 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's the longest expansion ever. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know the answer. Yeah, well, we'll, prob- f- we'll, find, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> and my final, final question for you, and really this is sort of tapping on your exposure to mainstream media, mainstream financial world. You know, Bitcoin really sort of popped in everyone's consciousness in 2017 when I met you at that, at that great dinner that we had down in um, near Chinatown. Uh, and you wrote a beautiful blog post. I thought it was, uh, I, I really realized what a fantastic writer you were. Uh, I think it was something into oh, Wonderland. Thank you. And it, was, it was great. Yeah, yeah. So here it is. It popped into world consciousness in 2017. Everyone started talking about it. And it's already mutated a few times in people's minds since then. In the last six months, though, uh, what have you seen that's changed? Or if anything, is it just the same old story? So when I was a keynote speaker in the closing panel of consensus invest 2017 the first year the audience was filled with young people primarily mostly dudes Mm -hmm. and they had made a lot of money Mm -hmm. um i think the price of bitcoin at that time was fifteen thousand or sixteen thousand um and my message to that audience at that time was calm down it's like like it's okay to to feel like you're missing out 
Um, you don't have to do something just because everyone else is doing it and they seem to be getting rich. And of course, it would only take a couple of weeks for that to look like really good advice. But that is always good advice. Maybe now we're in the polar opposite um, situation where instead of fear of missing out, there's, there's this like, there's this just incredible amount of pessimism that everything that people thought would be true about digital uh, currencies and and cryptography and blockchain is now a, is now like a joke in the mainstream financial media, or at least it's it's being derided on a daily basis. Um, and so maybe now things have gotten too pessimistic. And the only other example of this kind of thing that I could think of from my own career and experience, um, I remember my formative years in the industry were during the dot com bubble, and Everything came apart relatively quickly. It only took from March of 2000 to, let's say, the end of 2001 mm -hmm. for people to just be completely wiped out, um, not just in, in financial terms, although they were, but emotionally and, and mentally. And just nobody wanted to hear anything about technology ever again. <laughs> and in the, in the ashes of, of that experience, um, Google was born. In the ashes of that experience, very quietly, with very little fanfare, Steve Jobs rejoined uh, Apple as the CEO. Like the, the seeds for the technology boom that we've now been living through over the last, let's call it 12 years or 15 years, were born um, uh, in, in the ashes of, of that prior mania. So I think statistically, um, spiritually, any way you want to look at it, there was absolutely a bubble in anything related to crypto. Going into the end of the year of 2017, I don't, I don't think anyone would deny that it was insane, just as the internet mania. But the thing is, all of the predictions that were made about the transformative power of the internet actually ended up coming true. Mm -hmm. It just took longer than what people expected, and the companies involved were very different. If you think about the original dot-com bubble – we were worshiping at the altar of fiber optic plays like JDS Uniphase mm -hmm. um, and Nortel. And we were buying up stocks like AOL and Excite and Lycos and Yahoo, none of which are particularly relevant anymore. But all the predictions, we're going to buy groceries on the internet. It happened. We're going to buy mm -hmm. pet food on the internet. It happened. Toys, books. We're going to communicate all day long. Like all of, the, all of those predictions came true. It's just the investments weren't right. So if there is a crypto future and there is a blockchain future, it's highly possible that the early entrants who came along in 2015, 16, 17, 18 aren't going to be a part of it. And a lot of the investments that have been made will turn out to be zeros, but it doesn't mean that the, the future is written. So if I, could, if I could maybe flip the script and this year offer that, I know it's not that hopeful, but it's somewhat hopeful to the audience, then I'll, I'll feel as though uh, I've said something that's somewhat meaningful. No, but what you're basically saying is the world today is recognizable to the entrepreneurs and visionaries of 25 years ago. They would recognize what we're doing today as the thing they predicted. But as you said, maybe, maybe you know, coming at it from a different angle with different names on a different platform, the, the specifics are perhaps different, but the the overall outline of it is pretty much in line with with what those folks had envisioned. You know, this predates what I just talked about. Um, 
in the 1800s, we had a we had a bubble in railroads, and almost every one of them went bankrupt. But what was left behind in the wake of that financial wreckage were the tracks mm-hmm. and the trains and the stations mm-hmm. and the expertise to build more. And I mean, we have trains to this day and we have bullet trains and what they're building to connect my, I was just down in Orlando and I saw all the facilities that they've built for the bullet train. That's going to take people from Miami to Orlando in 15 minutes. Jeez. That, that is, but that is the, that, that system that they're building is a descendant of money that was lost to overambitious investment all the way back in the 1840s. So uh, I know people don't have that much patience <laughs> to wait 160 years to see uh, their dreams come true. But I'm just pointing out, like, after the railroad bubble, there were probably a lot of people running around saying, you see, it's all stupid. No, it wasn't all stupid. And we had functional railroads from the Civil War on. So, like, eventually, the technology found a way to be profitable, useful, um, and became woven into the fabric of our society. So it's possible that the crypto investments people made in 2017 were stupid, but that they had the right idea. And that in the wreckage of the bubble having burst, new companies, new ideas, new entrepreneurs, new uses come about, and the whole thing rebuilds itself. And all of a sudden, there are people with profitable investments. And just as a coda to that, I took the Long Island Railroad into Manhattan today from Long Island. And in every car, there are advertisement posters. And in the car I happen to have been riding in today were posters for the Genesis uh, crypto exchange. So, uh, and I know that's uh, Tyler and Cameron, and I would imagine they spent a ton of money on this. But everyone riding that train car was surrounded by posters for this new monetary exchange or brokerage or whatever you want to call it. And most of the people looking at this poster are like, what the hell does that mean? Um, but some people know. And I just I, I find it uh I find it interesting that there are still people willing to invest and advertise and market new products. And as long as that continues, maybe there is a, a future that's more in the near term than than what I think now for these types of technologies. So like you're saying, you know, the 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 tracks were laid to bring you from Miami to the happiest place in the world in, in such a short amount of time and Perhaps the tracks are still uh, there to bring Bitcoin to the moon and and realize everyone's when, uh, when moon when moon when moon. Well, look, I think I think we could separate like what we think the price of the thing does ver- versus what we think the utility will be. Um, that's where I've been since December of 2018. Mm-hmm. We wrote a blog post basically saying I'm done speculating on the price of Bitcoin. I think it's a mania. Mm-hmm. However, I'm open minded to the possibility that blockchain will become a transformative technology. The caveat is that it might be very unsexy. Mm-hmm. It might show up in the income statement of a company that managed to save a few million dollars mm-hmm. by going from database to, to a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that that implies that the price of a digital coin will go up, mm-hmm. but I, I'm trying to stay open-minded. It's not, it's not the romance of pamphleteering around the French Revolution or the American Revolution that everyone was, uh, was sort no, of... No, it, it could just, right, it could just be corporate cost savings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and again, that is a sort of revolution. Mm-hmm. It just won't involve people waving flags and, and uh, storming the barriers. 
Well, Josh, thanks for your time today. Uh, Did I bring everybody down? No, I didn't want to do no, that. It was, it was fantastic. And we're looking forward okay. to hearing more um, in just over a week now. Yep. So thanks for your time and, and see you soon. All right, Nolan. Thank you. Bye, Josh. Enjoyed this episode? I'd like to personally invite you to come to Invest New York in November. The event features not only the speaker you just heard, but an array of other amazing thinkers. Visit coindesk.com and click events or simply follow the link in the description. Thanks for listening and see you in New York City.